So Monday episode 206, Dory Clark. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Today's guest is a friend of a friend, and there are lots of friends that we share in common, including guests who've been on this show, Jillian Zoe Siegel, Ramit Sethi, James Altucher, Stephanie O'Connell. And so I'm really excited to connect with her. Her name is Dory Clark. She's a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review, Time, and Entrepreneur. She's been recognized as a branding expert by the Associated Press, Inc and fortune. What's a brand? Yeah, we're going to talk about that with Dory. I believe I have a brand. Sometimes I hesitate to admit it because I think it sounds sometimes a little snobby to say that I have a brand, but she puts it in a way that really democratizes this concept of having a personal brand. You have a brand, whether you're working at a company an entrepreneur, a mom staying at home with your kids, raising them, you have a brand. And so the earlier you recognize that and nurture that and cultivate that, the better off you can be. Now, Dory also serves as a marketing strategy consultant and speaker for many notable clients, including Google, Microsoft, Yale University, Fidelity, and World Bank, among others. She's the author of two great books. The first is called Reinventing You, And more recently, she's the author of Stand Out, How to Find Your Breakthrough Idea and Build a Following Around It. She currently is an adjunct professor of business administration at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and a visiting professor for IE Business School in Madrid. Dory was also featured on Huffington Post as a 100 must-follow on Twitter Uh, In 2013 and 2014, she's also on the Nifty 50 list of top women on Twitter. And most notably, she was named one of Inc. Magazine's 100 Great Leadership Speakers for Your Next Conference and recognized in Forbes as one of 25 professional networking experts to watch in 2015. So she is, as it pertains to branding and leadership, she's your go-to. And she's on the show today, so I'm very honored. We're going to learn a lot from Dory who, by the way, was also a former presidential campaign spokeswoman, we're going to learn why we should all care and cultivate our personal brands. And as I said, you have one, whether you like it or know it. The number one mistake people make in the pursuit of developing their audience and their personal brand and how to manage your money when you're self-employed and income is inconsistent and sometimes you make good money, sometimes you make no money, Dory shares her two big rules and why they work for her. Please welcome today's guest, Dory Clark. Dory Clark, welcome to So Money, a mutual friend. We're like three degrees of separation and we didn't even know it. Yeah, thank you, Farnoosh. It's great to talk with you. More like one degree. New York is such a small town. We have uh, James Altucher in common, uh, Stephanie O'Connell in common. Both have been a guest guest on this show. So it's really it's really nice to welcome you as well. Congratulations on your new book, Stand Out, How to Find Your Breakthrough Idea and Build a Following Around It. It was released earlier this year. Dora, you've built an amazing career around teaching 
Americans, people across the globe, how to distinguish themselves in whatever they're doing to make an impact, to stand out, have a brand. Brand is a curious word for me. I feel it's a very like 2.0 word, this personal brand term that we throw around a lot. Um, how do you define it and why is it taking on such importance in our culture today? Well, it definitely is a a 2.0 term. You're exactly right. Uh, The term personal brand actually was minted in 1997 uh, when Tom Peters, the great management guru, who was actually one of the people that I interviewed for Standout, uh, wrote a a Fast Company cover story called The Brand Called You. Uh, But fundamentally, what we're talking about when people throw around the term personal brand is your reputation. That is all it is. Personal brand is a synonym for your reputation. It's how you are seen in the world. And I think that sometimes if we boil it down to that, if we strip away the kind of modern connotations, people can begin to understand and take in why it's so important. I mean, fundamentally, your reputation is everything. It's it's how you're known. It's how people know to trust you. It's how they know to come to you and that you are worth it rather than just going to the lowest priced alternative. I like that correlation. Brand equals reputation because I think, and this might just be the voices in my head, I sometimes hesitate to say that I have a brand because then it sounds like I'm holier than thou or like I have so much, I'm super cool or I'm, you know, because we think traditionally brands are big companies. They're, um, you know, these giant machines of of corporations or or business or it's a Martha Stewart, you know. So to say that you have a brand sort of seems very elitist in some ways. But true, we all have reputations and we want to protect those and nurture those. Where do you see a lot of us going wrong in cultivating our brands? Well, I, I think that one of the biggest things, and it speaks to the shift that you're talking about, because you're exactly right. If we go back, let's say, 15 years, 20 years, regular people, I mean, they, they certainly had reputations, but when we think of brand with a capital B, I mean, as an individual, maybe only the highest tier of celebrities had it, you know, an Angelina Jolie brand or, a, you know, a Jennifer Aniston brand or something like that, because they were the people who were talked about on television and talked about uh, in these these mass channels. But the big change that has hit all of us is that now, thanks to the internet, thanks to the fact that anyone can be a publisher, whether it's of a podcast like this or blogs or, you know, just whatever content you're putting out there, whatever is findable about you in a Google search, because we are publishers now, uh, whether we're intending to be or not, uh, we, we are brands and need to manage that. And so I think that one of the biggest mistakes that people make when they think about their brand slash reputation, we all know, I think it is, it is absolutely saturated the culture at this point that it is a terrible thing if you have bad stuff about you on the internet. Everybody knows you can't have the the keg party pictures. You need to be cognizant of that. But I think that the missed opportunity that too many people are not taking advantage of is that because we can publish, you know, anyone can put up a blog on LinkedIn. Anybody, if they want to establish themselves in a new field or if they want to get their ideas known or recognized, they could start a Twitter feed about a, uh, a particular topic or something like that. Uh, they could create a slide share about something they're passionate about. Too few people are doing that. And that's a missed opportunity because when you're putting that content out, these days, the very first thing anybody does when they come into contact you and want to get to know you better is look you up online. And so you really can take the lead in shaping people's perceptions of you if you do it strategically. 
For those of us who work for a company, we are employees. I can see where personal branding is vital. If you are an entrepreneur, you work for yourself, uh, you are your own boss, and it, you can actually invest the good time into managing that and curating that personal brand of yours. But when you're working for a company and you're part of a team and you're part of a mission, how do you uh, gracefully and tactfully identify yourself as a personal brand within the within this environment. And so I know some companies, particularly in the media space, I've, I've, I've run into people saying stories like, my employer doesn't want me to have a lot of Twitter activity or you know, to be on Instagram all the time because it uh, they feel as though it um, it becomes me against them or I get too big for my britches. And I, I'm sure you've heard this as well. How do you navigate that as an employee somewhere? Um, because it's important. The economy is shifting. Eventually, you might be self-employed. You're going to have to rely on that brand as your parachute <laughs> to get you to land on your two feet. So how do you do this in a way that is smart but not threatening? Yeah, absolutely. This is a, a really big concern. And I think that that one of the things that is not as commonly recognized as it should be is that personal branding actually, I mean, it is self-evident how it matters to entrepreneurs because that's how you get your business. That's how uh, you survive is getting clients that are drawn to you on your brand. But I, I think that it actually in some ways may be even more important for people who work inside companies, people who are currently employees, to have a strong personal brand for two reasons. Number one is that at this point, you know, be, this is, you know, a, a, a podcast talking about finances and money. You are in a kind of risky position if you're an employee because all of your income source is coming from one place. And so with that risk, you need a risk mitigation strategy. That is your brand. Your brand is the best kind of career insurance. And so if you can create something that's so strong that attracts people to you uh, so that no matter what happens, if you're laid off, if something happens to your company, that you can walk in and get another job somewhere else tomorrow on the strength of your reputation, that is the absolute best thing you can do for yourself. The second piece that makes it critical is that a lot of other employees are not yet clued into this. So you can actually have a competitive advantage if you start now to develop a strong brand. So how do you do it in a way that doesn't threaten your, your employer mm -hmm. and make them think you're about to jump ship? Uh, a couple of quick points. Number one is I would say that you want to, to be doing things consistently. Um, we were talking a, a bit before uh, before the show about the fact that if there is a sudden flurry of activity, if all of a sudden you're uh, updating your LinkedIn profile and you know now it's uh, it's it's gold plated and amazing and beautiful and you've obviously spent hours mm -hmm. on it, people are, are going to look at that and say, "Oh man, is she about to quit?" <laughs> and it can be very threatening. So you need to to just go slow and steady in terms of your brand building activities. The other thing that I think is is really important to do is to think about how do you build your brand inside your company as much as outside the company. So you want to think about important things like uh, internal social networks, um, something like a Yammer or whatever your company might use. Uh, this is increasingly common for companies to use them. And a lot of employees are not taking proper advantage of them because they think, oh, this is irrelevant. Why am I wasting my time on it? But the truth is the company has invested a lot of money in these systems. They want people to be using them. And so if you are one of the few people that is maxing out their value, you will get noticed and appreciated. I actually had a, a friend who was a, a low-level employee at Burberry. And when Angela Arendt, uh, who's now mm -hmm. at Apple, 
was the CEO there, my friend posted on their internal social network um, a, a comment and a suggestion, and Angela Arendt personally responded to her. Uh, if you're doing that, you can actually get uh, disproportionate attention. I love that. And for as another example, uh, when I remember when I worked at Money Magazine over 10 years ago as a um, entry-level reporter, there were opportunities for all the staff, and including interns, to really um, go outside the box. For example, the, the PR team would come to us and say, hey, we have an opportunity to send someone from the staff on CNN to talk about the new issue. Who wants to do it? And you would think that a lot of people would raise their hands. I was one of like two people that would actually said, okay, I'll do it. You know, and it was scary and I didn't, I'd never been on TV, but they trained me and I was well coached and I got on and it honestly, it, it, it really started to build the momentum for me in terms of creating a TV career. And so look for those opportunities at your job too. If your company is doing a retreat and they're looking for leaders or they're doing a conference or they're doing, they want to send you to a conference to represent the company, to be on a panel, or um, there are opportunities to work with the media on behalf of your company, take those opportunities. They may not pay extra, but it's, ex- it's skill building, it's experience. And it is, I think, in some ways, establishing your reputation within the firm as someone who is that go-to guinea pig who was willing to, you know, go out on a limb for the company and and take chances and be entrepreneurial. And then when you leave, you have all this this host of skills that you didn't have necessarily uh, because you were able to, uh, you know, put yourself out there within the within the interest of the company. That's exactly right. In fact, in, in my book, Stand Out, I profile a guy named Michael Leckie, who's a vice president at Gartner, the research firm. And I tell his story, which I, I think is really great and emblematic, because he was somebody that was really interested in coaching and training and development. But when he started out, he actually didn't know that much about it. Um, but he was really into it. And so he essentially apprenticed himself to an external consultant that Gartner had hired. And he started learning from this guy and spending a lot of time with him. Eventually, he started uh, being an assistant in the workshops that were being done. Then he started co-teaching the workshops. And before long, he developed a reputation inside the company as a go-to guy on coaching and training. And, you know, he started out from zero, but because he was willing to to work hard in this uh, enclosed environment and share what he knew, people started to go to him. I mean, if you put him up against, you know, somebody like Marshall Goldsmith, you know, one of the, the great coaching experts, there's there was no competition. But because he was operating in an internal environment, he knew more than the people around him. And because he was generous with his knowledge, it became, oh, if you want to know about that, go to Michael. And I, I think that's a powerful lesson for all of us. How did you get involved in this in this uh, in niche, uh, Dory? How did you connect the dots and ultimately become this really the go-to branding expert? Well, for me, actually, my <laughs> my journey started, uh, you know, like yours. I was working in journalism, and uh, I, I guess for for better or for worse, I was in the vanguard of uh, the disrupted economy. Um, my first job out of graduate school was I was a political reporter in Boston, and I got laid off about a year into having my job. And I thought I was going to be a journalist for life. I, I liked what I was doing, and I figured that was going to be my career path. And it got rather unceremoniously ripped out from underneath me and uh, I needed to, to recalibrate. And so I, I 
was forced to reinvent myself. And in the process of being forced, I learned the value of reinventing oneself in a fast changing environment. And so I did a lot of, uh, I had the opportunity to do a lot of cool things. I was the spokesperson on a presidential campaign. I ran a nonprofit. I made a documentary film. And now for the past nine years, I've had my own business doing uh, business school teaching and marketing consulting and, and writing and speaking. Uh, but in the process of doing those reinventions, I realized you, you really have to take control of your own brand and you have to make sure that when people think of you, they're thinking of you for the right things. You have to find ways to uh, to stand out in the marketplace. And so in the process of me learning that, I wanted to uh, to gather insights from uh, from a variety of experts. So for standout, I interviewed about 50 top thought leaders in a variety of fields so I could try to break down the process by which they were able to rise to the top so that other professionals could use those strategies to uh, to hopefully get their best ideas heard as well. Authenticity is the key, right? And in, in so many of these people's examples, I know with Seth Godin, he was a guest on the show one of your interviewees, he he's he beats to his own drum. And um, so many of my listeners envy him and uh, and praise him. What was the what was the biggest takeaway for you from people like Seth in the book? Like what if there was a common denominator that or a trait that kept popping up uh, as they are as they were pursuing their brand building and their craft, what would you say it is? Well, I think, I think you're absolutely right that authenticity is a key pillar of it. Um, these days we are so used to having images manufactured, uh, that everything starts to, to sort of look alike. It starts to look just a little too perfect, a little too airbrushed. And so when people see things that are real, and Seth Godin is a very real guy, James Altucher, who you mentioned earlier, is about as real as you can get in terms of talking about his life and his experiences. People really respond to that because they, they understand that there's uh, a confidence that comes from being willing to share things openly. And, uh, and, it starts to, to resonate with them in their own lives. I think another trait that I noticed in the course of doing the interviews for Standout, um, which I think is, is important to draw out, is that a lot of people, you know, when I am talking about these issues, um, sometimes I, I get feedback from folks and they say, oh, you know, this is, this is great. Um, of course, it's wonderful to come up with breakthrough ideas and get known in your company or get known in your field. But, but I can't do that. That's for, that's for special people. That's for geniuses. I'm just a regular person. And I think that there's a big myth that is lurking here, which is that, oh, you know, special people somehow get these ideas implanted in their heads that, you know, the, the muses whisper to them, they have this amazing idea and then they go and do it. And what I learned time and time again from interviewing these folks is that it's not that you get this amazing idea and then you execute. It is that you start executing and in the process of doing that, you learn what your idea is. You start with just an inkling. You start with something you're curious about or something that you care about, but you don't know the answer to begin with. You have to roll up your sleeves and engage before the answer actually comes to you. Yeah, a lot of people think, well, Seth's a genius, so it's no doubt that he's that he's where he is today is so accomplished, but it takes hard work. It takes yeah. hard work. And if you're willing to put in the work, although that's not that's not everything, you gotta be strategic as well. But the hard work is is an important element. And all these folks are are doing the good the good hard work. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's that's 
of course, really important. And I think more than anything, um, you know, I, I just I don't want people to let themselves off the hook. I don't want people to to just say, oh, well, you know, that's you know, that's great for them, but not for me. I I honestly believe that. Anybody um, who has, you know, a, a minimum level of uh, of intelligence and, uh, and and passion, you know, just if if you are an engaged human being, you have a contribution that you can make, and it, it doesn't require a PhD, it doesn't require a hundred thousand uh, fans on Facebook. It just it just takes. Looking at something you care about, and you know, starting to uh, to dive in and. The ideas come to you. The solutions come to you in the process. Dory, are you ready for some so money questions? Oh, yes. <laughs> Let's transition now and talk a little bit about money, my favorite topic. One of my favorite topics, I should say. Uh, what is your financial philosophy if you have one, if you had to distill it in a sentence or two? Well, so as an entrepreneur, um, you know, for the past decade, uh, I've experienced, you know, like, like all entrepreneurs, uh, a lot of, um, ups and downs in the sense of cash flow. You know, some, some months you get zero, some months you get six figures, you know, it's just hugely, uh, variable. And so as a result, I would say that my, uh, my dual philosophy is, uh, hoard cash and have as many liquid assets on hand as possible so you can weather storms and also try to live beneath your means. Uh, so I just moved to New York last year from Boston, but when I was in Boston, um, I bought a house in this neighborhood. You can call it an emerging neighborhood. <laughs> and uh, none of my friends lived there. None of my friends had ever been there. Uh, it was a beautiful house, but it was it was in a, a place that uh, was not where the cool kids lived. Uh, but I deliberately did that because I wanted to, to be in a place where I knew that even if, if my business had a stretch where it was not going well, I could always afford to pay my bills and it was no problem. And you purchased this home? I did, yes. Did it emerge enough where <laughs> when you sold it, or I don't know if you sold it, but I did it appreciate. I did. I did. Uh, I held it for about eight years and oh, wow. I, uh, I made about, um, you know, probably, probably 50 grand off of it, nice. which is pretty good. You know, so I, I was able to, to, you know, essentially live for free, you know, for nearly a decade and make a profit at the end. So it, uh, it went well. I mean, you know, as with all things real estate, you uh, you get smacked if you have to sell before you're ready to sell. But if you can choose your moment uh, when the market is good, I mean, it sold in three days. So wow. that was fantastic. Good for you. So it was smart in that it saved you money in as your career was, you know, uh, experienced highs and lows financially. Uh, but also you did a really good, you had a really good investment on your hands. So I always like to hear about that. I'm a big real estate nerd. If anyone listens to the show knows me, I'm, I'm super geeky with real estate. What would you say, Dory, is a, a lesson learned growing up as a child, a financial lesson that to this day has stuck with you because it just taught you quite a bit about how the world works when it comes to money? Well, you know, one that really stands out for me, I was pretty young, maybe six or seven tops. And my father used to take business trips a lot. And he was uh, somebody who was, I mean, you know, he made a good living, but he was a very rash spender. And as a result, uh, my mom was always stressed about money because, you know, who knew what my dad would do? And so one, one day he had gone away on a business trip. And when he was bored on a business trip, he would buy things. And so uh, for about a week, 
uh, there had been this car sitting in our driveway. And at the time, my dad actually, um, he had, and some employees were working out of a portion of our house. And so I just assumed that this car was somebody's, some employee's car that was just, you know, being kept there. So I asked my mom, I'm like, what, you know, whose, whose car is that? And my mom was like, oh, your dad bought that on a business trip. <laughs> and, and it was, it was this, of course, it was this, you know, midlife crisis mobile. It was a red convertible. And I, and I just remember thinking, oh my God, like I was, I was like six. And I thought, how is it that I know that that's a bad idea? And he does not know that's a bad idea. <laughs> so that, that shaped me. And so what happened? Did he keep the car? Did it become just a source of you know, tension in the house? Uh, he, he kept the car. We, you know, we kept it for years. Um, it was, it was not something that anybody really needed though. I mean, my mom had a car already. My dad had a car already. He just, he <laughs> was just. Was it a midlife crisis? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think so. So we, we had it for a long time. Um, and you know, I mean, we would go for spins in it sometimes, mm-hmm. but it was, uh, it was not, uh, in any way necessary. Um, you know, my dad, you know, later on, um, you know, he, he continued his car buying fetish and there were other flare-ups with my mom as well. But, but that was one of the, the really early ones, but, uh, it, it made me feel very strongly that, um, that I want to have as few possessions as possible. And also if you're going to have a possession, talk to your spouse about it before you make the purchase. <laughs> yeah, no joke. <laughs> Another lesson. What, was, what is your financial, a, a great financial failure. It doesn't have to be you know, cataclysmic, but something that you <laughs> you look back upon with a little bit of regret. Uh, what happened? What did you learn? Well, you know, for most financial failures, uh, you know, they're they're usually not just financial in nature. Of course, money is tied in with emotions and the emotions behind why we make decisions and things like that. And so for me, that was certainly the case. Um, I live in New York now and I, uh, but it, it's not my first time living in New York. I, uh, I had what I call an abortive move to New York about three years ago because I was, uh, I was living in Boston and I had this girlfriend who, had been in New York and had moved to Boston to be with me. And we had been dating for a while and we're having some problems. And she was just insistent that Boston was the problem or it was at least a big problem. And she wanted to be in New York. And she was like, every, you know, everything's going to be taken care of if we move to New York. Everything will be better. I'll be much happier, you know. And so I, I really wanted to save the relationship. And so finally, I was just like, all right, all right, let's do it. And so I agreed to move to New York. So we we got an apartment, uh, which in New York is a colossal hassle. You have to mm-hmm. spend, uh, you know, this massive amount of money for um, just a broker fee. And uh, and so we signed a year long lease. We got our apartment, and literally within a week of moving in, uh, we broke up. And it was oh. the most uh, just dramatic, uh, bitter, recriminative breakup. Uh, You know, she wouldn't decide. She refused to decide whether she wanted to move out or I should move out. And so we were just locked in this stalemate for a couple of months. And, you know, during which time she would yell at me all the time. So it was so awful. (laughs) And um, so anyway, I ended up moving back to Boston. But so financially, what that meant was, you know, I lost thousands of dollars on, you know, this this fruitless, uh, Mm -hmm. 
real estate finder's fee. Um, I had to move all my stuff from Boston and then all my stuff back to Boston. And so, uh, you know, it was, it was 10 plus thousands of dollars for, uh, for just, you know, two months of stupidity. Um, so it, it was, it was money, uh, definitely, uh, tainted by, by all the, the sort of, uh, Hail Mary pass emotions of trying to save a relationship. Wow. And I mean, classic example of how emotions can, can guide you down a rabbit hole, a financial rabbit hole sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm glad you lived to tell the story and you you, you reflect on it with a bit of laughter. <laughs> Time heals. Yeah, exactly. What about a so money moment, Dory, a success? You know, yeah, you feel like you just, you really had a slam dunk moment when it came to your finances. What happened? Where were you? And how did you celebrate? Well, you know, when I was, uh, when I was looking at the, at the questions you sent over and, uh, and I was thinking about this, I... The first thing that came to mind actually was, uh, that made it tick this moment particularly triumphant was that it was, uh, it was almost a failure. It sort of felt like a failure. And then, and then, aha, I was able to, uh, to triumph ultimately. Uh, and that was, uh, back probably about six years ago now. I was, uh, Starting the process of uh, potentially consulting for a client, and this was uh, this was a large uh, nonprofit organization, you know, big uh, big organization in their field, and they invited me out for a, a day long meeting with them. We had a really good meeting, uh, and then they asked me to submit a proposal. So I, I did that, and uh, I. I handed it over. And the response that I got back was, uh, was, oh, sorry, you know, this, you know, this is kind of isn't what, you know, what we wanted. I don't, you know, I don't think we can do this. And I didn't have a lot of explanation behind it, but it was really stressful because I had thought that the deal was in the bag and, uh, and it wasn't. And so I, t- I was telling my mom about this. And the first place that my mom went was she's like, oh, did you ask for too much money? And I remember thinking, and I, and I said to her, I'm like, that is not helpful. You need to <laughs> not ever say that to me again, because I need to train myself to not always be like, oh, maybe I could do it for less. Because mm-hmm. that, is, that is the mark of weakness of a consultant. And uh, you just need to purge those impulses. And so it turned out, you know, that proposal didn't work out. But a couple months later, they invited me to submit another one. And so I did. And I, you know, put it at a similar price point. And they accepted that one. And I ended up working with them pretty consistently for about three years. Wow. Uh, so it, it ended up putting, you know, um, you know, good, healthy six figures in my pocket uh, from it. And that was uh, that was a great relationship. Were you surprised when they reapproached you thinking, okay, well, they rejected the first proposal. What did they give you enough feedback where you thought, oh, well, it's not me or the price. It's just the timing or the, you know, the scope that they're not interested in right now. But so what happened? I mean, they came back to you. So clearly you impressed them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Really, even just from the fact that they came back, I realized, you know, okay, you know, this is, this is all in the realm of possibility. Um, they, they had just, you know, it, it turned out decided that the, the initial thing they wanted to talk about was not a priority anymore, but they had this new priority. Um, so I was able to give them guidance about that. I mean, I, I think that when it comes to consulting for, uh, for clients, what really matters is, uh, if you're able to impress them with your level of strategic 
counsel, uh, if, you, if, you, if it seems like you understand the problems well and are able to ask probing questions and get them to think about things in different ways, they realize the value of that. And as long as the numbers that you're citing are not literally impossible for them. I mean, you know, a tiny organization is not going to pay you, you know, a gazillion dollars for something because they just don't even have it. But as long as you're citing numbers that are theoretically doable for them, then they are willing to pay good money for that because, uh, because good counsel is in short supply. Right. I mean, my husband used to be a consultant. He says half the job is just managing expectations, being really good at, you know, making sure that your client um, isn't uh, like that you just, that you're, you're always letting them anticipate what's next and not disappointing them. Yes. <laughs> Over promising yes, exactly. under, under delivering. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's your number one money habit, Dory? Is there something that you do on a regular basis? It doesn't have to be daily, but that is, that does help you with your financial decision-making. Well, so one of the one of the things that I try to do um, is I, I because uh, I, I you know I positive and negative here um, watching my father's example you know Mister um, let's buy the red sports car uh, I I think I've I've tried to pivot pretty far in the opposite direction from him so his other hobby that he really loved to do was uh, he was very into stocks and he was very into actively trading stocks, mostly egged on, you know, this was the 1980s by his stockbroker friend who made, you know, 150 bucks from every trade that he was able to convince my dad to do. (laughs) You know, I just look back at those times and I'm like, oh my God, it's just so extortionate and ridiculous but my father was a doctor and you know as as we know doctors and dentists are like prime marks for <laughs> stockbrokers and uh, so anyway my dad would just churn his portfolio in these ridiculous ways and so my response to that is like I don't even want to touch anything ever so essentially my habit is that I try to invest in things that it makes no sense to churn. So all my money basically is in index funds, in ETFs, in um I, I um have you know the, some of the the new uh, companies they have where they they sort of create these balanced portfolios for you, like Wealthfront and Betterment. Um, so I, I try to do things that are just really super lock and load, so that I'm not even tempted to uh, to be uh, managing things actively. Because I, you know, I've looked at the numbers and I rationally understand that I'm probably not going to do better than the market. So I just I you know every year uh, I will plunk in money and try to put it in something that I absolutely have no incentive to touch. Perfect. That's a lot of the philosophies here on the show too. I think we we hear it from even people who are financial planners and they say their biggest mistake early on in their advising years and even for their own personal investing, they thought they could beat the market and they have humbly realized, no, I cannot. And you know what? It's, It's been an awakening that has saved them so much money and, uh, and uh, also, you know, just nerves. It saved them a lot of nervousness, you know, jitteriness. I mean, to check the portfolio. Is it up? Is it down? Just let it ride. Absolutely. Have you had Guy Spear on your show yet, Farnoosh? No. Should I? 
I think you should. He is a f- also a friend of Jillian Siegel, who I know you have yes. been uh, speaking with. But Guy is a really fascinating person. He wrote a book. Um, he is uh, an, an investment uh, advisor. He he runs uh, he runs a fund. Uh, but basically, his book, The Education of a Value Investor, which is fantastic, uh, charts his personal, you could almost call it his moral progress from being this this kind of obnoxious young Turk to being somebody who is incredibly humbled after taking a job at a now disgraced firm and recalibrating his entire life according to following the principles of Warren Buffett. And he actually uh, was one of the people who bought a lunch with Warren Buffett for six hundred grand oh, wow. and got to you know learn from the master. So he's a very interesting person. Wow. Well, I wonder what they serve at that lunch. <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's annual, right? I don't know if he does it anymore, but I remember that. I remember the reporting on those um, episodes of you know win a lunch with Warren Buffett. Exactly. It's only going to cost you you know almost a million dollars. Yeah, gold-plated burgers. <laughs> <laughs> there better be some gold somewhere, somewhere out, sprinkled. Uh, all right, and so now let's talk about some hypotheticals. This is the part of the show where we uh, fill in some blanks. I start off a sentence and you finish it. First thing that comes to mind. If I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say $100 million, the first thing I would do is, first thing. Uh, I would buy an apartment in New York, which would just about – Take care of the hundred million. <laughs> Do you know I am currently looking for a sublet in September and October, and I'm on Airbnb and some other sites. First of all, there are not that many listings because it's a very, very uh, busy month for tourism in the city. So lots of things have already been um, taken, but the rent is out of control. And I think because it's an Airbnb listing, they don't just charge you the rent. They they take on. It's like. They look at it like it's a per night. Yeah. And I need it for about a month. So mm. I'm like, I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to go stay at the hotel next to JFK at this point because <laughs> <laughs> that, is, I don't even want to repeat how expensive, you can go on every me and search, but I am floored as to how much, and I'm really not looking forward to probably having to spend this much money because I just have to. Our renovation's taking longer than we thought. We have to find a new place to live. Um uh, but I digress. Oh, it's terrible. <sighs> okay, yeah, buy real estate in New York. I, yeah, that might leave you with like a million dollars left to spare. Um, the one thing that I wish I had learned about money growing up is uh, that when you were an entrepreneur, you don't have to and shouldn't necessarily be thinking about, oh, how can I stay in my budget? Instead, you need to ask yourself, how can I make more money? How can I increase the, the the top line? Yes. Do you know Ramit Sethi? I do. Yeah. So he's been on the show and one of his sayings, which I love and I live by, is that there is a limit to how much you can save. There is no limit to how much you can earn. And I Absolutely. Yeah. I want I want the personal finance conversation in this country to really add more elements of earning to the the discourse because I think so much is focused on cutting back, cutting back, cutting back. But at a, you know, at a certain point, you reach your limit and you're living in your car eating ramen, you know, so, and you're still, in, that's no way to live. So how do you actually make more money? I think is more interesting conversation. Definitely. Ramit's actually somebody that I, uh, that I profiled in Standout as well. Oh, wow. Of course. Yeah. He would be great profile. 
Uh, let's see. The one thing that I spend my money on that makes my life easier or better is? Well, especially because I am living in New York now, I just buy all of my food and don't cook at all. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and, uh, and that is fantastic because I never liked cooking to begin with. And actually, uh, if, if you, if you, boil it all down. I mean, you know, you, you can't be eating at expensive restaurants all the time, but seriously, if you're eating at, you know, totally quality places, you know, for lunch, like a Chipotle or something like that, you will get a healthy meal much cheaper than it would cost for you to even buy the ingredients, much less take the time to cook it. So if you do not enjoy cooking, then I, I fully support buying all of your food and just, you know, bringing little bits of delight to yourself every day. I echo that sentiment. And I would add too that as one, as an individual, um, I, I don't, do you have a family to feed? It's just you, right? Just me. Yeah. So cooking, I mean, you're going to have, I mean, if you're into leftovers, it's great, but I, I can't, I don't even, there's, I would just end up with so much food. I don't know how to cook for one person. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, maybe I just, I don't know, cause I don't know how to cook, but. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my biggest splurge that I spend a lot of money on, but I wouldn't have it any other way is? Yes, I get massages pretty pretty regularly, probably about every week. And uh, part of why this is feasible is, uh, first of all, in New York, there's it's amazing uh, because you can get a lot of, uh, you know, really discounted rates like in Chinatown or the sort of Chinatown outpost. So it's actually not that expensive. Um, but, uh, but I think it's so important because I twice now have had to go into physical therapy. I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous. This is something I, I wish that I had known and understood. I've had to go into physical therapy for two different parts of my body that were just, uh, completely unusable because I was having insane muscle spasms. And in both cases, they're like, Oh, well, it's because you sit too much. Oh, it's because you type at your computer too much. Oh, it's because you're on airplanes too much. And I'm like, yeah, and that's actually not going to change ever. And so <laughs> I uh, I realized that that if I could just do this regular maintenance where instead of letting my body get so clenched up from all of the things that I have to do for my job, uh, but, you know, every week there's some kind of outlet where, um, you know, my muscles can, can get a little bit of a reprieve. Uh, I, I think it is actually a really good investment in making sure that I do not end up in physical therapy and having to, you know, have them electrocute my shoulder muscles or whatever they do. <laughs> oh my gosh. But true. I mean, we all do those things. We ride planes, we sit. I mean, yes, maybe we should all get standing desks and that would help too. I actually got one, but I've, I, I had to stop using it because, um, well, we run it, we're renovating our place and there's nowhere to put it now. So <clears throat> I'm, I'm taking a, a break from standing while, while working. But uh, that did help me for a while, I will say. Yeah, they seem cool. All right. Almost done here. When I donate money, I like to give to blank because? So there's a, there's a couple of causes that I am uh, particularly affiliated with. Um, I am on the advisory boards for, for both of these. Uh, one is the Massachusetts SPCA, uh, the Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And uh, they are the second oldest humane uh, organization in the country. And they were the place that I got my uh, my beloved kitty. He actually died about 
close to two years ago now, which is really, really sad. But I had him for 16 years and he was my absolute best friend. And so I'm very loyal to them uh, because of that. I think that that pets are a great thing for everybody because they rock. And so I love uh, finding ways to to support animals and help them. And the other uh, cause that I'm involved in I actually just stepped down as the co-chair of the advisory board, uh, and now I'm just a regular member, uh, but it is uh, called Fenway Health, and they are based in Boston, and they are the uh, the, the, the world's largest uh, LGBT health center and, uh, and com- general community center. They're open to everybody um, in uh, in the world, and so they, they have great programming about uh, just regular preventative health for, for all people. They have a lot of uh, innovative research they do into HIV issues and, uh, you know, we're, we're really making a good difference. Excellent. That is really, really great. We'll have the transcript for this interview on the So Money podcast website. So everyone, you can check back for those uh, those charities and those links. And last but not least, Dory Clark, I'm so money because... <laughs> I I like to think that I am so money because uh, I am I am really excited about what I do every day. I really uh, am, am passionate and engaged with the work that I do, and it's uh, certainly my hope for everybody that that's uh, that that's the reality that they are either in or are able to be working towards. Um, because you know we're spending. At least, uh, but for, you know, for, you know, at least eight hours a day, but probably for, for more of mm-hmm. us, it's 10 or 12 or 14 hours a day, uh, working and, uh, and doing these professional things. And it's, uh, it's, it's sad, uh, to think, and I've certainly at different times in my life been there, uh, that you're, you're just spending it doing something that is not joyful to you. And so that's why I wrote my books like Reinvent you and stand out uh, because I want to help more people be able to achieve that where they really feel uh, engaged and like they're making a, a difference and an impact with the work that they do every day. Well, thank you for doing the good work that you do. Congratulations on your recent book, Stand Out. And welcome to New York. Happy to have you here. It's nice to know that maybe I'll run into you in this, I don't know, in the subway. It, tur- it turns out you actually do run into people in the cities of eight, nine million people. It's not that big when you really keep your eyes out, when you keep your eyes open. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll do one better than that. I'm going to, I'm going to invite you to one of my dinner gatherings for Noosh. Oh, yay. I'm so yeah. excited. I just, uh, I just did a little dance. Uh, you can't <laughs> see me, but I, I'm really honored. Thank you for that. Uh, well, Dory, thanks again. Uh, Congratulations and wishing you continued success. Thank you so much. That's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Dory Clark, her website is doryclark.com. She's also on Twitter at Dory Clark. All this info at somoneypodcast.com, as well as the transcript and comments. And I want to hear from you. While you're at somoneypodcast.com, click on Ask Farnoosh. Submit your question. Every Saturday and Sunday, I turn the show over to you and respond to your inquiries. And as a reminder, if you would like to win a free 15-minute money session with me, Leave a review on iTunes for this show. Every Saturday at the top of the show, I pick one recent reviewer to win that free 15-minute money session. So if this is something that you're curious about, you're interested in, you want to meet one-on-one on Skype, leave a review and hopefully we will connect. I appreciate your, your review. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much, everyone. Hope your day is so money. Money.